Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Don't Exhale edition. It's Wednesday, September 21st, 2016. On today's show, Don't Breathe, it's the sleeper hit of the summer, a thriller about teens trapped inside a homicidal blind man's house. It's brilliantly effective, but some people have found it somewhat cruel, we'll discuss. And then High Maintenance is maybe the most cherished and celebrated web series of all time. It's now an HBO half hour. We'll discuss how it survived the transition to the mothership with Slate's own TV critic, Willa Paskin. And finally, Harry Potter, the internet, and the changing nature of fandom. We'll be discussing an essay by uh, Laura Miller, who joins us today to fill in for Julia Turner. Uh, Laura, how's it going? Pretty good. It's great to be here. It's great to have you back, as always. Um, and of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. All right. Well, as um, as I said, we don't have the super efficient alien design cyborg known as Julia Turner here to uh, walk us through the business. But Dana, I think somehow between you and me, we can fake it, maybe. What do you think? <laughs> Our faltering human bodies can somehow <laughs> drag themselves through the, the, the announcements. I think so. Uh, yeah, really, there's only there's only two announcements to be made today. One, uh, as we've been talking about, we have a show coming up, a live show in Los Angeles on Thursday, October 13th, and that's going to be at the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica. And we'll also have a very exciting guest with us that night, who is Karina Longworth, the wonderful hostess of the Film History Podcast, You Must Remember This. And I believe, Stephen, it's not sold out yet. Have you been checking up on this lately? Consulting my wetware, my faulty wetware, I come <laughs> up with no. I don't think it's sold out yet. Um, I think we're we're doing brisk business, but not quite full. So um, as I've said in the past, I don't know what kind of an incentive this could possibly be. But uh, if we sell out, Dana and I are going to do a, a whole musical set. Uh, it keeps growing every time. <laughs> every time I sit down to the mic, <laughs> it's going to be like Beverly Sills level skill expected of me by the time we actually get to Santa Monica. So I'm half hoping the the show sells out, half hoping it doesn't. No, just mm-hmm. kidding. Everybody should pack the theater in Santa Monica, please. And my second announcement just has to do with today's Slut Plus segment, which will be a discussion of Jimmy Fallon's choice to have Trump on as a as a guest in the typical 
chummy, cute Jimmy Fallon mode and the backlash that that's caused on the internet. So Right, and how uh, how the media has conspired to normalize Don- uh, Donald Trump, who many people, me included, think should remain a completely abnormal political phenomenon in American life. Aha, uh-huh, there we go. There's a little spoiler <laughs> peek at some of the ranting <laughs> that you can hear if you're a Slate Plus member and tune in for that special extra segment. Okay, back to the show, Steve. Thanks, Dana. All right, moving on. Don't Breathe is a fairly low budget, I think about $10 million uh, film. It came out of nowhere, sort of nowhere, to semi-dominate. Or is this enough qualifiers? A couple of weeks of the summer box office uh, on a $10 million budget. It made 10x or so. It tells the story of three teenage thrill seekers who rob houses for kicks and cash in Detroit in a bombed out Detroit. And they decide to go for a much bigger score when they discover a blind Iraq war veteran who lives alone in an abandoned neighborhood and has a six-figure stash things go awry and they end up trapped in his chamber of horrors where emitting an audible breath might spell doom. It's directed by an Uruguayan filmmaker named Federico Alvarez. Uh, I think many people liked it. It did very good business. So we're going to discuss. Why don't we listen to a clip first? And just to set up this clip a bit, what's happening here is essentially, if I recall right, the first encounter between the three invading kids uh, who at the beginning, your sympathies are somewhat against and uh, and the man who's the victim of their home invasion. So it's the moment, it's not the moment that they learn he's blind. They already knew that, but it's the moment that he learns that they're there and tries to ascertain how many of them there are. I know what's in there and I ain't leaving without it. You got me? Now you do as I say, all right? Well, do you hear me or what? I said stop. Right. Don't you move. Stop. All right. Well, Laura Miller, you never cease to surprise me. You are one of my favorite critics, um, as is Dana. But um, sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. It. Jesus, come on. Um, but you did surprise me. It turns out you're a fan of this kind of uh, genre horror film. So I'm going to start with you. This was a good excuse to finally go see this. What did you make of it? I really enjoyed it. I don't really think of it as a horror movie, partly because there has no element of extremity or the fantastic to it. It's more of a thriller, really. Yeah, it's more of a, a thriller yeah. along the lines. Of, I mean, it's a funny, almost a reversal of that old Audrey Hepburn vehicle, uh, Wait Until Dark, where she's the blind woman being terrorized. By mm-hmm. three people yeah. coming into her house. Into yeah, her it's house. an interesting reversal of that. Yeah, yeah. So it, which is definitely more of a thriller, but it does have the sort of pattern of tension and crises and tension and crises that the thriller has sort of adopted from the horror film. Mm-hmm. What, what, how, how much did you like it? I really loved it. There are several things about it that I like that it breaks the mold of what you would think of as a sort of a cheap genre horror or thriller film in that very little of it is sort of grotesque or unbelievable. I mean, there are moments definitely towards the end, that are controversial, that you think, oh, that's going a bit too far. But, you know, the bu- the bulk of it, you know, the victims are, it's really hard to, to sort of pick who the victim and who the, the bad guy is. But mm-hmm. each side is maybe a little bit too capable of recovering from their injuries and going on to fight again. <laughs> I agree. But I had sort of expected something more like Home Alone, where they would go into his house and it would be booby-trapped in this kind of grotesque and uh, sadistic way. And instead, 
you're kind of your sympathies kind of go back and forth between mm-hmm. the burglars right. and the blind man. And a lot of it has to do with the incredible performance of Stephen Lang as the blind man, just his physical presence, the way that he looks like someone who has suffered a lot and who has made himself mm-hmm. strong in this kind of warped way that makes him both a poignant figure and a terrifying figure. Yeah, it struck mm-hmm. me that at moments he was a bit like the Raymond Burr figure in Rear Window, you know, who who yeah. looms in at the end on Jim, J- Jimmy Stewart in this terrifying way, but who in that very same moment become, becomes kind of vulnerable and pitiable. And that's something very unusual in this kind of movie, right? I mean, if this was the typical last girl left, you know, running away in a cabin in the woods from a monster kind of movie, which it sometimes does resemble in the second half, you would never have the kind of sympathy switching that you, that you have in Don't Breathe. And mm-hmm. I thought that was one of the most interesting things about it. I mean, if we could go just for a minute into the genealogy of this movie, because I think this is part of the interest and part of what drew me to wanting to see it, is that it's produced, co-produced by Sam Raimi, who's the great comic horror director, I would call him, who handpicked this director, Fede Alvarez, a few years ago to remake his own movie, Evil Dead. It was That was Alvarez's first movie. He was actually a Uruguayan special effects maestro of some kind. And Sam Raimi admired his work and thought that he would get the aesthetic of Evil Dead and sort of chose him to uh, to make this remake of it, which I thought was a very successful and scary remake to, to the extent that there's any point in remaking a movie like Sam Raimi's Evil Dead. Some people found that it was too slick and sort of missed the roughness of, of old Raimi. But at the very least, I felt like it, it revealed Fede Alvarez as, as a good craftsman of these kind of movies. And it so happens that the best thing about his remake of Evil Dead was the main actress, Jane Levy, who is also the main actress in this movie, who plays Rocky the young woman who I think is by far the most sympathetic of the mm-hmm. of the three character three invader yeah, characters and who kind of carries the movie really along with Stephen Lang. I wasn't sure that it really had the courage of its own moral equivocation about who the monster was, who the villain was, who was the hero. Um, certainly towards the end of the film, it abandons it altogether in ways that are meant to completely salve the conscience of the viewer and bring one's predetermined genre sympathies totally in line and totally unpredictable line that said i think it's expertly made from beginning to end i thought the setup of the movie was actually beautiful i thought the performances were terrific not only lang who i agree brings you know unmistakable depths of sympathy to the figure who's also supposed to be the freddy krueger in some you know r- routine way the the efficiency with which the motivation for the robbery is set up for each of the three characters um, each of the three teens breaking in, I thought was beautifully done. I mean, with with real economy and confidence uh, and wit even. Um, however, don't you think it abandons its own, its own scruples uh, towards the end of the film without giving anything away? Yeah, I can't help but agree with Steve that there is this moment towards the end, which we don't want to spoil, where things turn to the, to the to a level of the grotesque that is... That feels a little bit more typical of of a cheap horror film. But up to and then after that point, really the style of the film, the the economy and the incredible coherence of the physical action is really the selling point of the whole thing. 
Yeah, it's a movie about style, I think, to me. And maybe in a slight way, because it has been so built up as kind of one of the sleeper horror hits of the summer, I was a bit disappointed in the conventionality of the ending and the fact that at a certain point, like almost every really horror movie, especially one that's based on some sort of chase in an enclosed space, not unlike the uh, Cloverfield Lane movie that we talked about a few months ago, at some point it devolves into, you know, are are they getting away from the monster or not? And then it becomes much less interesting. But something that I really respected about this movie and that seems very, very Raimi-esque, but also has a little bit of its own verve, is that the camera in this movie has its own life. It has its own point of view. I mean, I'm sure you guys know some of the moments that I mean, and I don't want to give away some of the things that are revealed by this technique, but there are moments as the three kids are, you know, snaking through the dark house as quietly as they can, where the camera will jog away for a second to show us some prop that might become important later on, or see something hidden, a possible weapon that they don't see. And uh, and those moments were so clever and almost Hitchcockian to me, just a, a moment that the camera is, is assuming some sort of subjectivity of its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, I, we're all in agreement that um, we're eager for the inevitable here, which is that Hollywood's going to throw money at Alvarez. Yeah, but I think the great thing about him is how much he can do with so little, and that's know, always that's the not, danger. That's not his fate. Someone's <laughs> going to hand him. Uh, someone's yeah. going to hand him a franchise on its second. I'm or not third sure about iteration. that, Steve, because I feel like there's another Hollywood business model, which is also which the Paranormal Activity movies completely subscribe mm-hmm. to, which is mm-hmm. make us more cheap content. Horror movie director, maybe Fede Alvarez mm-hmm. is going to fall into that zone. All right. Well, that's a fun prediction to see, you know, who's right about. But anyway, the movie is Don't Breathe. Uh, come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest and tell me what you thought of it. And then I'll know what I thought about it. I'm on the fence, but uh, really admired its craft. We all agree it's uh, well worth seeing. Okay, moving on. The web series High Maintenance is about a Brooklyn pot dealer making the rounds. It's an excuse for, as Willa Paskin wrote in her Slate review, gorgeously composed character sketches of this various clientele. It's only a little bit about the dealer played with gentle and inscrutable wit by the show's co-creator, Ben Sinclair. It's very much about the urban menagerie of New York City in the age of anything goes. Uh, Why don't we listen to a clip and then we'll discuss. And let me set it up a little bit. Uh, the uh, pot dealer who goes only as the guy, I believe. Yep, that's pretty much the only way he's named. Or my guy, some my people guy. call him. That's what they call him. That's hilarious. Um, shows up at the door of a, cl- of a client who's a huge um, kind of Vin Diesel type, really jacked in a uh, tank top in the midst of a you know raucous fight with his girlfriend, after which the guy just won't pay him and delays and delays and delays by talking his ear off and acting out in a semi-violent and weird but very funny ways. Let's listen to a clip. Would you uh, ever want to start one of those customer loyalty programs like buy one, get one free, you know, for people like me? Uh, I can't do that because I don't, my business isn't going well enough to get a free product yet. Even after I invite you into my home? Give you hospitality, serve you my special mate. 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 No. Doesn't that count for anything? Oh, no, it really does. I appreciate it, man. I, like I said. Well, it, what about like a free joint or something? It, Colin says you hang out and smoke with him all the time. I know, but, you know, when I have time, I do, because, you know, we've known each other a while. We're friends. It's, what, we're not like, friends? We're friends. I just, I've only met you twice, so I didn't think to say we were friends yet. All right. Well, we're joined by Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic. Willa, thanks for coming in. Uh, thanks for having me. You pointed out as a web series, it was brilliant um, in itself, but added to which it was often mercifully short, as often as brief as five-minute episodes. Now it's a half an hour. What did you make of the web series, and what do you make of it now It's uh, that it's uh, been made official by HBO? I- 
I loved High Maintenance. I loved High Maintenance as a web series. I thought it was um, kind of like the best web series that has ever existed, Not to, which is not a huge amount of praise necessarily. I don't think there have been that many great web series, but um, it sort of showed everything that a web series could be. It was uh, really, really well made, really funny, really precise, and it was any t- amount of time it wanted to be. It sort of felt like it took advantage of not being on television. So when it was announced that HBO was buying it to make more of it, it at once totally made sense. Like, that's a great show that HBO 100% should own or should be trying to make. Uh, but I was a little bummed because I have enough half-hour <laughs> sort of comedies in my life, and um, I didn't know that I needed this one to become another. But But I think that it made the transition sort of immaculately. I think it's still a really wonderful show, and uh, I like it enough that I'm not upset that it's half an hour long. <laughs> well, something it, that it didn't give up from the web, at least in, in, in what I've seen so far of the HBO show, is that um, that fragmentary nature. Even though this was, I believe, a 36-minute episode, the first episode anyway, you could pretty much divide it up into three separate episodes of varying lengths. I don't think they were even even in length. And ex- except for sort of glancing relationships between some of the characters, there's not really a through line that con- connects all these stories. So the impression I get is that High Maintenance is going to continue to deliver the thing that it delivered so satisfyingly on the web, which are these little self-contained short stories, often with neat little O. Henry-style twists at the end. There's a very, very frequent reversal at the end of these stories where what you thought you knew about a character or set of characters turns out to be untrue or a reaction that you were waiting for turns out to be either much more muted or much more intense than you thought it was going to be. And uh, and that style of writing seems to have survived into the HBO version. Yeah. And the other thing is that who has ever just watched one episode of High Maintenance <laughs> at a time anyway? So in a way, it's, it, you know, for me watching it, it would be like, oh, you know, I have a half hour before I have to make this phone call or I'm going to cook, I'm going to eat dinner and I have a half hour. So I'll watch two or three episodes. And so in a way, it's not that big of a a leap in terms of the watching experience. I mean, in a way, it's also like, um, it's this interesting thought experiment to consider what high maintenance would have been like if it had started on HBO and not had this chance to sort of figure out what it was and get to sort of have a main character who is nebulous and we don't know that much about him and to change every episode and sort of introduce us to new characters. Like that is a hard sell for a regular TV show, um, even one on a premium cable channel. So because it was sort of backed in by being itself and then getting purchased, it got to sort of keep these hallmarks of it's like got to continue to be a little odd in a way that I, I would be, I would think that some of that oddness would have gotten um, sanded down in the development process. That seems very true to me. And, and the fact that the guy is the linking element. He's like the string and the necklace. And then all of the other characters are the beads. And and it seems like in a more conventional development situation, the creators would be compelled to make more of a story about him, which would sort of ruin the lovely meandering quality that it has. There are even some jokes within within the, the stories about how little is known about the guy, yeah. right? I mean, people sort of speculate, do you know anything about the private life of the guy? <laughs> Only a couple of times in the history of the whole show since the web series have we seen any glimpses. Once he spent a day with a niece, a little girl, and you got a sense that he had a family. But it's not like we go home with the guy after his weed delivery rounds are over and you see how he lives. Yeah, we never 
never see where he lives. Well, I do just want to say that we do end up going home with a guy (gasps) in episode six, but it's still sort of, it is very, in a very high maintenance way, it's very sort of, you don't really understand what's going on until later in the episode. You don't actually see inside of his apartment. He gets locked out of his apartment um, (laughs) and he has to go stay with a neighbor. So so he's kind the of like us. The is still like little drops about it, but it, you do sort of learn some more about him. And I'll, I mean, and then there's an episode that's coming up um, that's all from the perspective of a dog. And he has a relationship with the dog's walker that like he it's a girl he's into. So you sort of see some more about him. I haven't seen the dog episode yet, but I'm really excited that they decided to do that because I think another thing that seems so refreshing to me about high maintenance is that they're very willing to play with point of view and style, you know, so that sometimes they'll seem to be pastiching a certain style and then they'll let go of it because it doesn't go with the next story. And you don't sort of have a sense that their ideas are getting put through a high maintenance eyeser that makes all the ideas and stories come out the same. So the idea that suddenly we could be inside a dog brain, even though it has nothing to do with the show as it's gone so far, makes a kind of sense. The dog episode is also just, um, it's really interesting because it's about a dog who's in love. Um, like that's, if the dog falls in love with his dog walker, I mean, it'll, you know, in a doggy way, it's not like they, they make that over, but he has a sort of, um, he imagines his dog walker while he's like waiting in the house. His dog walker is played by Yellowstone. She's sort of a hipster dog walker, but he has this fantasy of her like dancing in a field, like in all white, like she's sort of Stevie Nicks, like that's the dog's fantasy. It's very, um, you know, it's very, it's very charming. And I mean, one sort of caveat about high maintenance for people who haven't seen any of it and are avoiding it because it's a stoner comedy about a pot delivery guy. I just wanted to drop this in if that's the reason you're resisting it. That was the reason that I resisted watching the web series for some time because I just sort of thought, what is there new to do with a genre of stoner comedy? And just to clarify, I would not call this stoner comedy at all. Not at all. In fact, there's many episodes where you don't really see anyone get high at all. The transaction might be an excuse for some sort of social interaction, but it's not, it's in, in no way either a, a pro-drug or anti-drug or even particularly drug-focused comedy. at all, no. Well, I, so I no. must admit, I've never watched it before and now I'm completely charmed. I uh, love everything about it. Um, now, as I understand it, so we he remains um, kind of uh, inscrutable a little bit, but there are repeat characters, is that correct? There are people that he visits over and over and over again and we start yeah. to get some continuity and uh, sense of continuity about their lives. Over and over and over again might be an exaggeration. There's a kind of an oblique. I can't think of another example. There must be one of a of a series or a book series where people come through in this glancing way. But for example, there's these characters known as the assholes, which I guess were big fan favorites of the yeah. web series. So they brought them back for the first uh, for the first HBO show. And the assholes are these very good friends, a gay man and a straight woman who have been friends forever and who essentially walk around New York just being the most heinous, shallow people you could possibly imagine. Yeah, you'll see them interacting with someone in this really sort of bright, loud way that seems positive and enthusiastic. And then the minute they're away from that person, they say these the most nasty, disparaging things. They seem to hate everybody except each other. And so they've been these characters that the the guy, our guy, has hated delivering to the whole time because, you know, they're jerks. And I think at one point they didn't even come up with the money for him. And he, again, had to wait around for a really long time. They're sort of always treating everyone awfully. But in this beautiful and really moving twist in the last time that we see them, you get some some glimpse of the the fracture within their own relationship. And I won't give away how that happens. But 
But it's just it's a great moment where these people that were sort of laughably awful antagonists become really human and sympathetic. Well, I'm going to scour Vimeo and go back and watch all the other ones. I mean, it's that good. It's really, really um, it's it's very, very clever. Uh, Willa, so your final analysis is made the transition to the mothership uh, seamlessly. Um, also, I note they only ordered six episodes. They didn't go crazy. You know, even stretching it out to 10 or 12 might have been a little too much. It seems they understand the role of scale in um, making this so fetching. Totally. I think the fact that <laughs> it's not too much and it's still, I mean, six episodes is basically, as Dana said, because it has a sort of vignette feel, is probably like 12 episodes for them. They have that many different pieces to each episode. And that seems like exactly as ambitious enough for them to still be making a good show, but not have like watered themselves down. I think one of the great, great strengths of this as a web series and as an HBO show has been the casting. And Katja Blickfeld, who's married to Ben Sinclair, they're the co-creators, and he, of course, plays the guy, was a casting director, actually an Emmy award-winning casting director before this show got started. And the two of them were, you know, on the fringes of the entertainment industry doing editing and casting and sort of decided, because they had this huge group of friends who were wonderful actors who weren't getting work anywhere, that they were going to find places to to let these people work. And that's really something I love about this show, is that almost every face is an unknown and unexpected face. One of the very few exceptions is that Dan Stevens of Downton Abbey played a role in the uh, the first season, I believe. Um, he shows up again. <laughs> he does? Oh, that's great. I can't wait to see him again. Um, and but, actually, I'd not to tell the twist away, but in the clip we played, when he says, when the Vin Diesel character says, you hang out with Colin. Colin is Dan Stevens. So it's like <laughs> the show is sort of threaded like that. And actually, it makes sense that Dan Stevens' character wants you have seen that whole scene. Yeah. Yeah. So but but the but the relationship is a cyclical one, right? Between between episodes. It's not as if there's an arc building and that you need to watch them in a certain order, which is something else that I love about it. You can sort of dip in like a carousel, just jump in and jump off. But but just inevitably there'll be, you know, the the kind of face that you don't often see in a TV show or, you know, a combination, sort of a romantic couple that doesn't look like a regular romantic TV couple. And so I like that slightly offbeat sense of the casting. It's part of the strength of the show. Mm. All right. Well, Willa, thank you so much for coming on and talking about high maintenance. Uh, It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Harry Potter launched a phenomenon that's seldom acknowledged and barely understood, but that's as powerful and lasting as the books themselves. So writes Laura Miller in Slate Magazine. As she concludes, Harry Potter represented the first massive internet-born fandom and really changed the concept of fandom forever. Correct, Laura? Yeah, that that just about says it all, Steve. <laughs> End of segment. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It better not. I mean, you're you're quite you make a couple of quite astute points that as soon as you say them, one slaps one's forehead and says, yes, of course, which is the best point to make. The first is that um the phenomenon of Harry Potter was completely coincident with the rise of the internet. Um and even though at the time what everyone thought about them was how they were drawing young very young readers back to books or to books for the very first time, in fact as important to the rise of Harry Potter is the fact that it was a shareable experience over um, the new uh, public space known as the internet. And the second is that, yeah, okay, there was Star Trek, there was Star Wars, there was a certain kind of nerdy fandom that preceded Harry Potter fandom, but Harry Potter really changed that forever. It did. Harry Potter coincided with the rise of the web, which is the more user-friendly, less command line based version of the internet because the internet pre-existed Harry Potter and um, was used by a lot of people and including fans but it 
became available and and sort of accessible in a way that it had never really been before with the rise of the web and browser-based interactions with the internet. And that includes forums, but also mailing lists and weblogs, which are really just sort of like news feeds created by one or more people with interesting links or items on them. Um, so there, there, there are a lot of different versions of ways that people could connect with their fandom on the web. That people could connect with other fans and find out about new things or learn about other kinds of fan activity like wizard rock bands or playing Quidditch in real life or fan fiction. And, um, and then that in turn created a kind of general interest in fandom and all the ways you could express it, it was just so much easier and faster for people to find out new ways to be fans. It's something I hadn't thought about before, before reading this piece is such a simple connection to make, but that, that the Harry Potter phenomenon and that new understanding of the web, right, that, that for example, AOL stopped charging by the hour at the yeah. end of 1996, I think, yeah. and 1997 was the first Harry Potter exactly. book, correct? And yeah. so really the two of them were sort of born at the same time. And yet, strangely, within the Harry Potter universe, computers and the web almost don't exist. <laughs> Even as muggle artifacts, There's, I believe there's a little reference somewhere to Dudley Dursley being online playing video games too much, which is the kind of thing he would do because he's a boring kid, right? But but certainly at Hogwarts, there's not any presence of electronics or the web. And it seems to sort of be taking place in an earlier time in history when those things were not there to worry us. Yeah, that's true. I had not actually thought of that myself. But um, but yeah, it, it some of the biggest early sites for Harry Potter fandom were started by incredibly young people or were moderated by extremely young people. A MuggleNet, which was started by a guy named Emerson Sparts, he was only 12 years old when he started that. So there are also, it created this opportunity for very young people to have a far more decisive, creative role in the fandom. I mean, before, you know, when I was a kid, you might join like the fandom for the Partridge family or some sort of kitty rock band like that. And you would get stuff in the mail and you might buy some records. But there wasn't really that much you could do to really express your fandom and then take it from there into sort of new creative fields. Um, whereas once the web came along, people could find that instantly and they could find new ways to express their fandom and to actually create new stuff. There's this period uh, called the three-year summer between the release of, I believe, the fourth and the fifth book in the series, where it just took her a lot longer to write it than she had expected. They'd been released every year up until that point. And during that period was a huge blossoming of the fan fiction world. Um, Laura, correct me if I'm wrong. It seems to me one of the really interesting developments of fandom um, and also essentially the business model um, of the large entertainment conglomerates over the last, let's say, decade, but I would say even the last five years especially, is um, entering a world. World is one of those now is kind of a... um, you know, common term of art in Hollywood. You know, the most lucrative thing one could possibly invent is a world, right? So uh, it, maybe it's the influence of video games um, on narrative content and vice versa. But 
now you hear over and over and over again, Star Wars is a world. We have to reanimate the world with a new trilogy. People want to go back into the world. Talk about what kind of a linchpin role Harry Potter played in this uh, paradigm. Yeah, if we go back to like a like an early, really intense media fandom like Star Trek, there was a stigma attached to that. Yes, the people who were into it had a tight community and they had conventions and they collected stuff and they wrote fan fiction and they did all these sort of fanish activities. But it was seen as a sort of a geeky thing. But the significant thing about Harry Potter was it was a children's series. So it had the sort of imprimatur of all of these authority figures, librarians, teachers, parents, everyone thought it was great that all these kids were reading this book. So an entire generation of kids grew up with this as sort of their official kid culture. I mean, every kid read it. I One of the people that I interviewed was a an expert on fan fiction, a professor called uh, Ann Jamison, and she was invited to teach a class on fan fiction at Princeton. And she said the first thing I had to explain to them is that this is not a Princeton class about this sort of outsider culture. Every student in my class will have read these books and will have probably participated in the fan culture in some way. So it was unusual in that it was so incredibly widespread. There was no real stigma attached to it. Everyone was really excited that it was happening. And possibly the only people who felt a little weird about it were adults who were reading the books who would sometimes be hassled by other adults who were reading kids' books. But there were so many adults doing it, and the media was so validating of adults reading the books by, you know, me and all of these other book critics. That was, we were all going to review that. Michiko Kakutani was definitely going to be reviewing the new Harry Potter book. And so it really lost the stigma that has usually attached to fandoms. I mean, not only was it okay to be fanish, but it was kind of okay to be fanish about fanishness. You know, now we were all proud. We were really into fan culture and celebrating fan culture as opposed to sort of participating in it in this sort of sheepish off in the off in the sidelines way. How does J.K. Rowling feel about the whole the whole fan culture that's mushroomed well, around her? Book? That's the other thing that really ha- made Harry Potter fandom even more robust. Made it really the the first really internet-born mega fandom was that um, J.K. Rowling completely supported almost every fan activity. There were a few fans she clashed with when she felt that they were producing work that was significantly taken from her own original work. She she did sue um, the guy who created the Harry Potter lexicon because he tried to publish a book based on this website that had too much of, of her copyrighted material. But beyond that, she was always very supportive of fan art, fan fiction, fan activities. You know, the other sort of early internet fandom was around the X-Files, and they were just persecuted by um, the television studio that owned the rights to that for using images, characters. I mean, the, the cease and desist letters were just a sort of the boogeyman of every early fan community in the 90s. And people were hiding their fanishness in part because they were afraid of being sued or otherwise harassed by studios. And my piece opens with the moment that uh, Heidi Tandy, who was one of the founders of Fictionality and who was kind of a big figure in the Harry Potter fan fiction world, 
got this email from Warner Brothers, and she was terrified. She thought, oh, they're going to tell us to close down Fiction Alley. And instead, the email was saying, do you want to be uh, an affiliate of the Warner Brothers shop? And that was really a turning point at which the sort of powers that be, which is the official in fandom, is what you usually call whoever is the rights holder for the original material that is also called the canon. The powers that be were usually something to be to hide from and be afraid of. And this was the moment when they sort of reached out to the fandom and sort of enlisted the fandom and fandoms became part of the the marketing of the canon itself. This 12-year-old who had the column at fanfiction.net and who was a founder of Fictionelli, uh, her name is Flourish Clink, she now works at a consulting company whose main job is to establish good relationships between fandoms and rights holders. <laughs> it's a new career. Yeah. And in addition to just the timing and the fact that, you know, this series happened to pop up at the same time as this, you know, crazy new medium of transmission, what do you think it is about the Harry Potter series and about J.K. Rowling's way of writing those books that creates this this capaciousness that allows that so many fandoms to flourish? Well, there are so many avenues into it. Um, fandom is not a sort of monolithic thing. And so people who are into writing fan fiction may have no interest in collectibles. Or you may be really interested in the costumes and want to dress up like the different characters and go to a convention and sort of pretend to be them. But you might not know anything about slash fan fiction, or you might not really want to collect every single edition. I mean, there are just so many. Slash fan fiction, just for people who don't know, being the sort of more hardcore shipping, well, more, sort of more, more sex fiction. Yeah. No, slash is typically um, male-male pairings mm -hmm. of characters who are not... Um, oh, I thought it was any kind of sexual pairing. I did not realize can, it was a gay-male It can be, thing. but it generally it usually refers... It's it's anything that's non-canonical. Right. And so, I mean, I think of it coming from the Kirk, Spock, yeah, slash it's world. Yeah, Kirk, Spock is the archetypal slash. Um, it, it isn't always, but, but, but as a general rule, slash tends to be more... Um, Explicit. Yeah. Well, it's erotic. Sometimes it can be. Sometimes it's just romantic. Yeah. Sometimes it's not explicit at all. But it's focused on these relationships. And so there's just different ways that people can engage with it. There's so many different aspects to it. It has and one of the reasons why the fandom is so huge is that there are so many doors that you can walk into. Right. And thinking of how as each book got longer and longer as Rowling was, was producing the series, at the time I wasn't reading it and I was just thinking, is no one editing this woman? This sounds so self-indulgent. These books are 800 pages long. And now that I'm reading them with my daughter, we're in the middle of reading them out loud together. I wish they were all longer. <laughs> and I can't say that I wish that as an editor necessarily. They are kind of shaggy. But because there's just so much imagination and so many ideas and rooms in the in the castle to explore, you sort of want it to go on and on. It does go back to Steve's comment about world building, which is a concept in the in science fiction and fantasy that is really different from what we would consider in the traditional no necessary in the traditional novel, which is that you you use the narrative to create a sense of another world that then the reader or viewer or fan can enter into as sort of an alternative imaginative place to inhabit. And that and she's in incredible at that. Yep. I know my daughter is always saying that she wishes there was a whole series from Hermione's point of view <laughs> and that there was a whole series that just took place at the Weasley's house, yeah. the borough, because okay, those are such wonderful places those to are, visit. Those are the statements of a future fan fiction writer. <laughs> or possibly, <laughs> possibly current. Yeah. yeah. All right. 
Well, the essay is The New Powers That Be, Harry Potter, The Triumph of Fandom, and the Future of Creativity by Laura Miller. You can find it at Slate.com. All right, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? You know, in honor of Julia, who's not here this week, I'm going to endorse a very Julia-esque thing, which is an article on the Audubon.org site <laughs> about a bird called the Greater Honey Guide that lives in, in Africa. The, the particular honey guides being explored in this article live in Mozambique. And uh, Julia would know much more about how to spot the greater honey guide through binoculars and what it looks like and what its nesting habits are. I just think this is a really cool and fascinating article about human and animal symbiosis, because the reason that this African bird is called the honey guide is because it has this relationship with tribes in that area that apparently has existed for countless generations where they can communicate by making a kind of bird call to the bird, a certain sound, and the bird will then lead them to the nearest honey. And, <laughs> what and does then the bird get out of it? The, well, the article sort of explains all of that. It's the bird is—it's essentially, you know, the bird gets ten percent. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the the humans find these these vast honey oh, hives, break them open, break them open, and then I don't know if the bird gets sort of first pick or <laughs> if they keep him away, and then he brings his friends later. But it's a way that everybody can find honey in a you know in a safe and wow. easy way. And uh, and just some of these explanations about you know people's calling and response with the birds, and just details about about that relationship are, are so fascinating. And it's a pretty intensely researched article about the human greater honey guide relationship in Mozambique. So again, it's on audubon.org and we'll provide a link on our site. And maybe Julia, when she comes back, can give us some more greater honey guide tips. Mm -hmm. Lovely. Um, Laura, what do you have? Well, I was very fortunate um, last week that uh, a writer I used to work with, a science journalist, was in town at, to open an art exhibit that she created with her twin sister and a lot of other people. It's a big collaborative project that's been going on for over 10 years. It's called Crochet Coral Reef. And she and her sister, her name is Margaret Wertheimer, sister's Christine, they started to crochet the various organisms that live in the Great Barrier Reef. They're both Australian. Um, it was a sort of environmental, sort of feminist project because of the needlework aspect of it. Um, but it also is a really scientific project because, as Margaret explained to me, the geometry used by the coral and other marine organisms to be found in a reef is hyperbolic geometry, um, which is a kind of non-Euclidean geometry that for many years, mathematicians thought they couldn't create a physical model of until this woman mathematician pointed out that you could do it with crocheting. So there's a kind of a fundamental structural connection between them. And um, we were, she gave me this tour, which was wonderful. These are these amazing creations, and we'll put at least one photo up on the website. It's at the Museum of Arts and Design in New York and Columbus Circle. And if you're in New York at all, check it out. It'll be there till, I believe, late January. There are these huge, some of them are huge, some of them are very small. Um, and then there's a sort of environmental component. Um, they Lately, they've been doing this portion of the crochet coral reef that's called toxic reef, where they crochet the organisms out of um, videotape and plastic bags. They look very monstrous. Mm. And I was looking at one of them and I said, oh, that looks like Cthulhu from H.P. Lovecraft. And she said, oh, I'm so happy to hear you say that. We love him. And I said, you know, he always talked about non-Euclidean geometry, um, that Cthulhu's ancient city under the ocean was 
built according to non-Euclidean geometry, which is why you would go crazy when you saw it. And she said, well, actually, hyperbolic geometry is non-Euclidean geometry. So that is exactly what this is. It's based on non-Euclidean geometry. So they're both, you know, beautiful and strange and and creepy and grotesque and um, colorful. They're just fantastic. Um, Th- that project seems incredible. I'm so glad you brought this in for, for your plus because I had heard about it from a completely different context. And I guess I'll, I'll augment your endorsement with this, which is that Margaret Wertheim, one of these two twins, uh, appeared on On Being, you know, the, the oh, yeah, radio yeah. interview program. Yeah. And uh, last year, I think, and, and did a full hour talking about this project and other projects and kind of bringing together um, uh, conservationism and, and craft and kind of using crochet as a teaching tool, right, to sort of show show people both what's happening to coral reefs and how hyperbolic geometry works. Anyway, the woman's brain was just out there, like her level of 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 intelligence, but also just warmth and ability to communicate the importance of this project was incredible. So I really recommend after you've looked at your wonderful pictures of the crocheted coral reef, listen to that episode of On Being. It's called The Grandeur and Limits of Science. And the guest is Margaret Wertheim. Mm. Wonderful. Um, all right. Well, inspired by um, Don't Breathe, I'm going to recommend one of the great trapped in a small space with the monster movies ever, Dead Calm. Uh, it was an Australian film featured oh, in yeah. early performance by uh, Nicole Kidman. It's just a terrific, it's a terrifically taut suspense movie. It delivers, I think, perfectly. It sense Laura of the interior space of that boat that it takes place on is really to the inch. I mean, it's precise down to the inch. Uh, which is what makes it terrific. It also features skinny Billy Zane, um, <laughs> who's <laughs> strangely menacing. Uh, it's it's a ter- it's a beautifully constructed uh, suspense well, film. Why don't you explain the premise? All right, the setup is that um, Nicole Kidman and Sam Neill are this married couple. They've suffered a personal tragedy, and they he's a serious sailor and has a beautiful small i don't know if you call it a yacht but a very nice sailboat that one can take kind of halfway around the ocean and for respite for kind of uh you know spiritual respite they go off on a on a long um trip just the two of them into the middle of the ocean and they encounter a menacing person who takes over their boat and i won't give anything more away but it's 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 astonishing that the entire movie unfolds essentially on this quite small um, craft and it's 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 really it's quite beautifully done anyway and then secondly I want to just quickly um, endorse the Twitter feed of a guy named Chris Arnade who is I understand A R N A D E who as I understand it was a bond trader and has since become a kind of fantastic uh, public moralist and uh, journalist um, and essentially what he's writing about is Trump's America but from a very interesting point of view deep sympathy with the plight of people who live in abandoned or half-stranded communities across America who are turning to Trump um, with uh, uh, turning to his false bravado with false hope. Um, And uh, he's brilliant about that and its relationship to um, the ascent of free markets, which he knows about from the inside. His Twitter feed is terrific. Um, He's doing very good journalism with it. It is very worth um, finding Chris Arnade, A-R-N-A-D-E. All right. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for coming on and filling in. That was It's terrific. been a blast. Thank you, Steve. Dana, always a pleasure. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash 
Culture Fest. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. Our intern is Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers. As always, he's the chief content officer of the Panoply Networks. The Culture Gap Fest is part of that network. So check out the entire roster of like shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Laura Miller and Dana Stevens and Willa Paskin, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll, we'll see you next week. Everybody, Harry Potter, Harry Potter, Harry Potter.